We, the Future, by Cliff Lewis, an audio excerpt read by the author. Plan A, activation. Step one, run for your life. My chest, like the future, was burning. Still, I ran up the mountain trail. Even with the sun so low, with daylight running out, the birds went on chirping like they had all the time in the world. Nobody told them it wouldn't last. Welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I get to speak to author Cliff Lewis about his book, We the Future. Cliff is an author and speaker who helps young readers explore weighty subjects through the lens of a wild-eyed pop culture adult imagination. He also specializes in freaking out his neighborhood by dictating these stories into his phone while jogging before dawn. And in fact, that snippet you heard at the beginning of the podcast is a teaser for chapter one audio version of his book, which we will play at the end of the show. Cliff has been gracious enough to give us a piece of his book to listen to and really immerse yourself in the world of We the Future, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Cliff and I get into a fantastic conversation about climate change, about the youth of today, about his book, and about what we can do to make a better world. As we know, the theme of today's podcast is reconnection. Well, it's not today's podcast. It's this year's podcast is reconnection, uh, which can mean many different things. Uh, Often, I attribute it to revisiting old or familiar scenarios with new information in order to make a more positive or a better outcome. And nowhere is this true, more true, truer, yeah, whatever you want to say, than in We the Future, where there's a literal time traveler who comes back to the past to make a better world. I love it. It's fantastic. Before we get to the episode, I do want to let you know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Empire Toys. Nostalgia is something everyone loves, and Empire Toys in Keller, Texas is on Nostalgia Overload. With toys and action figures from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, Empire Toys is a one-stop shop for a trip down memory lane and a chance to reclaim what was once yours but likely sold at a garage sale. Check out Empire Toys on Facebook, Instagram, or at TheEmpireToys.com. And by Self Unbound, your quality of life, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually is a direct reflection of the level of abundant energy, ease, and connection your nervous system has to experience your life. At Self Unbound, your nervous system takes center stage as we help unbind your limited healing potential through network spinal care. Access the first steps to your Unbound journey by following us on Facebook, Instagram, or at www.selfunbound.com. Now, without further ado, my episode and interview with Cliff Lewis is right up after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time, a man who flew into my emails one day, introduced himself to me, and I was wildly impressed. Cliff Lewis, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me on. 
You know, I when someone emails me, and first of all, they say, your show is fantastic. I'm putting words in your mouth now. I'm paraphrasing a bit. But folks, go with me on a journey. When, when, when someone reaches out and is like, your show is incredible. Your show is amazing. Joe, I don't know how you do it. You're incredible. Yes, I'm embellishing. But provide some compliments. And then says, and then says, I've got a book. It's a post-apocalyptic story. It's about what would happen if, what would happen when, what happens when climate change takes a turn and we are all living in this new society. I'm hooked. I'm, d- I'm done. Like, take my money. I want to know more of the story. I'm in. I didn't even have to finish reading before I hit yes, but I did finish reading and then I read it again. Cliff, I'm excited for you to be on the show. There's a lot of goodness to talk about. Um, but first, for the listeners that are new to the podcast... What I invite people to do here on the Detox Podcast is invite people to quote-unquote detox from the world around them uh, and get a window into how other people live their lives. But I like to ask my guests a question right at the top of the show, and that's, Cliff, what are you currently detoxing from? I am, this week, this particular week, I am detoxing from, as a parent and a homeowner, I am detoxing from doing everything myself. Oh, uh, because for the last, uh, since late last year, uh, my wife, Jen, she got into, uh, she applied to grad school. She's an educator and she wound up getting into the number one graduate education program in the country and which was super exciting and super cool. But the, the only, uh, catch was it was about a hundred miles away from us. So it so yeah and there's field experience in classrooms where you have to show up early in the morning and commuting was not really going to be an option so uh on the weekdays she's been living uh in philly which is about 100 miles away from us yeah and we have a little studio apartment there for her while she's in school and so i we've got two kids and i just have been running the house for the last year and juggling that with my job and juggling that with um getting, getting ready to launch this book, which I'm super excited about, but boy, there's just a lot of stuff that I'm used to doing as like a, just, just handling solo. And I am, I am delighting in the experience of like occasionally being able to just step back and say, Oh, you've got this. Okay. Okay. You've got this, you know, and uh, not having to do every single thing on my own. So that's been, that's been like a very, not a lot of withdrawal in that detox, just uh just a nice, like goes down real easy. You know, I, uh, completely, well, I, I would say this, I mostly empathize. I have not had the experience of having a, a spouse or a partner living so, um, uh, so far away post kids. Right. So I think there's yeah. different types of relationships and different concessions you make pre kids. Um, post kids is definitely a, an entirely new, uh, journey. What I will say, um, it's a new experience for me when my eight year old, is able to do a lot on her own and then is asking, Oh, can I help with dinner? Oh, can I put the dishes away? Oh, and I'm so, I'm so used to being on my routine of, and then I load the dishwasher and this is when I'm cooking dinner and this is how I'm cleaning up and this and this to like step back and go, Oh yes, you can. And this is how, and it's like, it's so simple as like, she just wants to unload the dishwasher or wash some grapes or, like yeah. make a sandwich, right? Like basic stuff. But I'm like so used to just like, no, this is my routine that I have been having to detox in the same way of like, you know, it's okay to step back and just let let the kids go because the kids are all right. They're okay. Yeah, it's true. It's a joy. It's a joy like when you're able to 
just accept that, like that stepping back, accept that leaning back. Yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, well, speaking of leaning back, what we don't want to do is lean too far away from the seriousness of climate change. So I want to talk about your book, We the Future. And what's interesting to me, so I'll say this at the end, and I'll tee, I'll tee this up so that way if people are listening and they want to they want to kind of know um, at the end instead of sort of kind of turning off at the end once I wrap it up, um, you made a little uh, uh, an audio teaser for the book. Well, I'd say a teaser. It's an excerpt from the book, um, the audio version of the book, and you provide it to us so folks can listen to what the audio version of the book sounds like at the end of this podcast. So we'll have that going. It's about five, six minutes long before it wraps. And it, it's, it gave me goosebumps. I was so, I mean, first of all, I got to say the the story is fascinating. And then the pacing and the styling of the audio excerpt truly gave me chills. I'm a, I'm a, I'm going to let you talk here in a minute, but I want to, I want to uh, give you some praise because I, this is going to be a, a bit of an odd cut, not really a deep cut, but a bit of an odd cut. And so if people get it, they get it. If they don't, they don't. Um, love it. Love it. I, I enjoy the company Graphic Audio. Are you familiar with that company at all? I don't. That doesn't ring a bell. It's okay. Somebody out there listening just like jumped like, yeah, me too. Okay, cool. So that person yeah. that, that is listening right now, you know what I mean. They do audio they call it a movie in your mind i'm using air quotes here so that's their thing and they do full audio productions of books and um and they have a narrator and they also have people interspersed with voices but they have different actors that come in and they have the music underneath it's very similar vibes and i love it i came on i came aware of them became aware of them because at the time they were licensing dc and marvel properties so like they did marvel civil war they did um kingdom come for dc they did batman no man's land i loved those productions um yeah and um uh, but that was a that was a while ago and so when i was listening to your excerpt that was the very first thing I thought of was, ooh, I love this. I love this, the staging and everything because it reminds me of something that's so familiar. So that's that's a bit of a tee up uh, for folks at the end to get to hear that. But I want to circle back to you and say, um, first of all, what was what is your background in writing which led you down the path to writing this book? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I wrote books. I've been writing books since I was about eight years old and just writing, you know, little books, little packet books at first. And then eventually I learned how to take the guts out of a, um, physical book in our house and actually print a book, uh, staple it together, put a little bit of, um, uh, rubber cement along the spine of my self-bound book and, smush it into the book cover of an existing book and then cover the existing book in masking tape and make my draw my own book cover onto it. So I did that like I self-bound a few books as a kid just so that I could like have that feeling of of having made something uh, written a story of my own in its own you know between two covers. And I you know loved writing in that way uh continued to dabble in writing in little ways through high school and through college, studied English. And worked professionally as a writer in various like marketing settings, advertising agencies and stuff. And eventually got to a point, it was when I had my second kid that I'm not sure what exactly snapped in me, but I just realized that 
this was something I'd always thought about doing that. I always had stories that I kind of nursed in my mind and kind of just folded over in my head and kind of worked on the details, but never really like actually activated the muscles it took to turn those stories into something that another person could, could consume and engage and, and read. So I learned how to just start writing a little bit every day. And I basically just did some really simple math and I thought, okay, so a, a book typically has like, let's say a book has between 80 and a hundred thousand words if it's like a more moderate size novel and, you know, just doing the math of like, okay, divide that by 365, how many words do I have to write every day in order to have a first draft of a novel? I did the math. I realized, you know what? I can, I can write that many words a day. So I started doing that. And first I was just writing little short stories. And then I graduated up to writing a novel. My first novel never got published, but I had like, it was a really profound experience writing it Sure. and took me a while to get it put together and there was this enormous amount of world building that went into it. And it was just like this oh, ridiculously overly ambitious first novel to write. Sure. But I did have a wonderful time writing it and it never quite found a home. And then that kind of led me up to when I was struck by the concept for We the Future, I had actually felt a little bit, just a little bit um, jaded, a little depressed about writing because I had put so much into this first project and it didn't seem to get off the ground. Yeah. And I, the concept struck me as something that would be a powerful way of conveying the urgency of the climate crisis and not just the urgency, but really conveying, really putting tools in the hands of young readers that would enable them to do something about it, to really yeah. do something about it now, tangible tools. And when the story and and that whole vision kind of came to me all at once in the core concept of the the narrative, and the moment I saw that story, I just knew I needed to write it as quickly as humanly possible. And it just I was I've never been, I've never felt the wind at my back. I've never felt such a profound sense of purpose and felt so up to the task. Just felt it within me that I must do this. I will do this. And I can do this, but that's what happened. And that's how we, the future came about. There's a, there's so, there's so many good notes there. I don't, I want to, I don't want to lose the thread, but I, I do want to point out, I think it was interesting to me that you mentioned the fact that um, had a bit of an overly ambitious first project. And I have spoken to many an author on this show, and I think every single one of them had a overambitious project that they had a lot of fun with, didn't really go anywhere, learned yeah. a lot, right? And oh, yeah. so I think if, if nothing else, if you're listening and you're wondering, like, what does my future hold as a writer? I think you can take solace in the fact that so many of these uh, wonderful authors that have come on the show have had an initial overambitious project they enjoyed, they learned from, and then they used it to inform the next project that they're on this show to talk about in this case. So I just wanted to, so to call that out. I, I want to, I'm going to come back to this. I have, um, before, let, let me do this and say, so for the con, let, let's talk about the concept for a moment. Uh, I'm yeah. talking a little bit about climate change. So let's tee up uh, a little bit of a description for folks that are that are wanting to purchase the book, which is out this month here in the month of April. Um, what is a brief description for the audience? Yeah, the synopsis. So the story, um, and you're gonna get you'll get a little bit of this if you listen to the 
to the opening chapter in the audio excerpt, but the story is about a boy named Jonah who is just absolutely racked with climate anxiety. Like he, it has completely consumed his life, the fear of, of what could happen. And this is a boy living in the 2020s, like it, contemporary to our time at this moment. And he's feeling totally helpless, hopeless, isolated because he's trying to live his life in a way that he thinks is reducing his carbon footprint as much as humanly possible. And it has pushed every modern amenity out of his life. It has pushed normal interactions with other people out of his life. And it's a, it's kind of a miserable way to be. And he's doing it all by himself. Um, and all of that changes on one particular day when he's experiencing a particularly desperate moment. And he is met by a girl from the year 2100. And she shows up specifically in that particular place and time, looking specifically for him, for Jonah. And she is there to recruit him into her mission to launch a climate strike that is big enough to rewrite the rest of the 21st century. So this story is a little bit science fiction. It's a little bit time travel, uh, but it's especially a story about, about organizing and direct action and how getting invested in a common cause can help us find our people. So it's a story about making friends by saving the world. And it's a story about saving the world by making friends. It, um, <laughs> it's so interesting to me The there are so many stories about saving the world in various, in various ways, in various means, um, at various times and in various settings. And at the core of it all is the ability to find someone to bond with and save the world together. And it, I was reflecting on this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's Planet of the Apes, right? It doesn't matter if it's Hunger Games. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if it's We the Future. Mm -hmm. The ability to make friends and say or companions and save the world together is core to our existence because we need to have community. I think it's so, you feel that. And in, in the way where we have the ability to be so individualistic and really know what we want, which is key to us being able to be, to thrive. At the same time, we do also feel this pull towards something bigger than ourselves to, mm. to merging with a community and trying to make things better than they are. It's it, to me, yeah. this is my opinion here. I feel like there's such a pull for one or the other that it's not an either, or it's not a, it's not a, a one or the other type of perspective. It really is both together in different settings of having yeah. the individualistic perspective to be able to inform the larger communal aspect with your own unique lived experience and skill set and knowledge that you bring to the table. And yes. And so I love that, that he's got to pair with someone, right? He meets someone uh, from the future and they've got to bond together and, and work together to, to save the world. I just, I, I love it. I, 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 that's sort of like my, my, my bread and butter. I love that dynamic because it's so essential to who we are as a, as a society. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think you're really like, you're really barking up the exact same tree that I was barking up as I wrote this book. And, you know, it is, there is this, um, this balance that exists where you see a problem in the world and you feel a, f and, and you see it clearly and it presents itself to you clearly as a, as a crisis and you want to do something about it and you feel that fire in your bones to to make a change that's like that's a real feeling and it's not something that it's not something that you you by joining with other people you just uh divest yourself of that personal sense of drive you still have that personal sense of drive and you have personal gifts and personal talents and personal superpowers that you bring to that experience of joining yourself together with other people. It's one of the, it's, it's very much something we explore in We the Future, where, where you, where every single person on this crew that Jonah, with the help of, of Sonny, his, his new friend from the year 2100, um, this crew that they assemble is they're trying to, is very much like I was, I was trying, you know, the book doesn't have a heist uh, Ocean's Eleven vibe to it. But I was thinking about those kinds of stories where you have to assemble the crew and you need to find, you know, the the tech whiz and you need to find the person who knows how to how to like, you know, hang down on wires and lower themselves into some safe full of uh, motion detecting lasers. And, you know, in this case, it's like we need to find our communications person. Who's the person who's particularly skilled with words? We need to find our our management person who's somebody who knows how to make things happen, how to mobilize people, how to organize people. You know, and and finding that core crew and really building something out of it. And along the way, everybody learns more about themselves individually and finds so much more fulfillment and and so much more of an outlet for their own individual unique gifts and talents. Um, so yeah, it's it's not about like allowing yourself to be subsumed into this greater whole and like losing your personal identity because you're actually finding a lot of it along the way. Yes. And, you know, I think it's interesting. You had, you had mentioned previously um, that sort of the inspiration for this book or maybe some of the core ideas of the book were from political activists uh, utilizing your home as sort of a, a, a centralized location for them as they started to, to organize. Am, am I getting that correct? Yeah. So that they basically, my community, there's a congressional campaign in 2018 and we were running a candidate in our district that had really bold, very strong progressive positions on and and uh, uh, plans for tackling the climate crisis. And because of that, uh, and and on top of that, we had this. The campaign was being run by unusually young campaign managers who were just absolutely brilliant and were connected with some of the best organizing political organizing minds of our of our time in in the United States right now. And so they ran this campaign like this beautiful well-oiled machine of community and like it was it was it was a beautiful thing. They were testing out like a fairly new form of political organizing called dis distributed organizing which is like a lot more like network building based as opposed to like very top down very hierarchically based and very much about like letting groups like cluster out and and form these little sub communities and it worked like a charm there was so much community there was so much like so many friends were being made through this campaign 
And because of the, especially because of the climate uh, uh, platform of the campaign, it was attracting climate organizers from from like individuals from across the country. There were there were folks who came from across the world to help support this campaign. And it just so happened that we had volunteered our house as a staging location for door knocking. And this, uh, we had support like every single day we did that from some of these climate activists who were actually helping us uh, run our staging location. And so we would have, and then they would invite their friends. So like their climate activist friends would also be coming to our staging location to run canvases. And we just had points where we would have like a whole gang of these like firebrand youth climate activists in our house. And I had never understood, really understood what the climate fight was until I met these kids. Like to me, it was like, um, it was a consumer choice. You know, it was like a, I buy this product instead of that product. You know, I, I drive a Prius. I got some solar panels on my house, you know, individual lifestyle choices and not something where you're working together, joining together with other people and, and really organizing and, and fighting for big, massive systemic change fast, which is really what we need, you know, to find solutions on the scale of the crisis. So yeah, meeting those people was what was really what sparked the idea. That's, I, I, it's really fascinating to me. Um, <laughs> I'll say the older I get, right? And I'm, I'm a little tongue in cheek with this. I'm not as old. I was a, a, I was doing an interview the other day. I was doing an interview with MT Anderson, the most recent guest on the, the podcast. And I was joking about uh, how old I get. And he was like, ah, you don't have white hair and a white mustache and, and this, that, and the other. So fair enough, fair enough. Um, but I would say the older I get, the more I'm su pleasantly surprised. This is how I want to say it. Pleasantly surprised, not by the intelligence, the ingenuity, and the the craftiness of a younger generation, I think that's always been there to some extent with each new generation. What is surprising to me, pleasantly surprising, is in a lot of cases, we're finding some of the people in charge of institutions are opening the door and saying, look, this is y'all's future. I, tr I trust y'all to tell us where we should go, what we should talk about, where we need to organize because you are closest to it and you're going to be around longer, so it mm -hmm. impacts you more. And yeah, I, I know growing up when I did and the generation before me, it was a struggle to have to be taken seriously and be able to have those conversations. And so now I'm glad that they're happening and they need to continue to happen at all levels and then have like I like the, the cluster right in the communities forming because that's where you have what we were talking about earlier, the individualistic um, perspective folded into the collective community that's that's being formed where everybody does feel that they've got their own perspective and voice and ideas are being shared and and community is being formed and policies in this case are being shaped. It's incredible. Yeah. I love it. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I'm interested in your decision to write it as a as a youth book. Um, I mentioned M.T. Anderson a moment ago and and when I was recording with him, I he had an interesting quote um, from a prior interview he had done, uh, I think it was on NPR, uh, where he was asked about why do you write for young adults? What's your draw? And his point was, he said, 
we, I found out I could write the same type of book I could write for adults as I could for young adults. And he went on further in the quote, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially the, the messages and the ideas that want to be shared resonate in, in, a, in a more profound way in a lot of instances with teens, youth, um, the young adult YA group because they're closer to the ideas, they're closer to the experiences. It's gonna it's gonna resonate more. And often us us adults, the older we get, the more we need a little bit of a preamble about like what is this idea about? I'm not so certain about this idea. What is really happening? Yeah. Kids, young adults, you just drop them in the action and say, Look, there's a time traveler from the year twenty one hundred. We gotta save the world. It's a crisis. Let's go. I'm on board. Yeah. You don't have to waste words with me. I'm right here. I'm on the journey. So I'm curious, what yeah. was your perspective in writing for this particular audience? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, I think the best way to set it up, to answer that question is um, to give it like a little more of the backstory, which sure. is, you know, I met, I met those climate activists, which incidentally, they were all affiliated with a group called Sunrise Movement that has, has really become the, the predominant uh, national like organization for for bringing together youth climate activists in the states at least um and uh they you know after i had that experience and met them it kind of just simmered with me for a while for a good few months and um you know there was a moment when i was listening to a podcast interview with an author named uh, david wallace wells who wrote a book called the uninhabitable earth which is a i mean if if you want to get like a very like healthy gentle punch in the stomach, uh, to help like get to like wake, shake you out of some kind any kind of apathy around the climate crisis. Like that's the book to do it. And, you know, he was giving an interview because the book is very much about worst case scenarios and it's, it's kind of harrowing and it's like, it's a little dark, but it's, it's healthy. I think it's actually a healthy thing to read, especially when, um, you have some concept of what you can do about this crisis and you, you don't you don't just step into this chasm of hopelessness so he was he was being interviewed um and he he said the this i actually wrote the quote down here he said um he said a big interesting question for me is why we've had so little good movie making good storytelling about climate change which is to me the epic even theological story of our time. We've brought the planet from stability to the brink of crisis in 30 years, and now we have 30 years to save it. And, you know, when he said that, I was, you know, my background in in writing fiction, like, like kind of stepped forward as I heard him say it. And I was just like, I think I can probably write a story that is about the climate crisis. Like to me, it was a challenge to write about the climate crisis. And, and he's wrote, written and, and commented on this in other places where he basically says, we, we have a lot of things that, we have a lot of intellectual property and storytelling that brushes up against the issue of climate change. Like you could say that in Game of Thrones, there's this like large metaphor about this looming, like with with the, the White Walkers and like this looming approaching disaster is like a metaphor for climate, the climate crisis. We have a lot of metaphors, right. but not a lot of stories that directly address it. And I thought, can I write a story that directly addresses it and makes it feel really tangible, makes the stakes feel as high as they actually are. And to me, that was the challenge. And almost at the very moment, the challenge presented itself to me, that idea just crystallized of okay, well, if the if one of the things that makes this issue easy to ignore is the fact that 
the worst consequences are all the way out in, you know, 2060, 2070, 2100. Why don't I, why don't I take those stakes and put a face on them and put a name on them and make that a person and bring that person to the 2020s in a story. And the moment that that idea kind of formed, that was when I knew I needed to write it. And I felt so, and to answer your question, I felt so, so passionate. I felt such a sense of, of, of purpose when that idea presented itself to me that, you know, it felt like, and I'm, and by the way, you may have already gotten the sense, but like, I'm very melodramatic. I am, I mean, I, you know, I didn't just write stories as a kid. I like tried to make them into books and of I like, made, you know, like, so I'm, sellers. yeah, like I'm, so I'm very dramatic. So when I had this idea, I felt like I was like Luke Skywalker in that X-Wing, you know, and I had one shot left and, you know, I was going to turn off my, uh, my nav computer, yeah. little eyepiece thing yeah. and take this one shot. And I felt like this story was like my one shot at doing something. And it's not, it's not the only way that I can help organize. And like, this book is all about the many ways that we can join together and work together to help make a difference. But, you know, to me, this idea felt like I've got one shot with this idea and it just felt like young readers were absolutely the very best, most important, high impact place where I could be sending this book. And for a few reasons, um, one, because I think they deserve to know how, how dire the crisis is because it's going to be their problem to inherit. So they, they deserve to know, you know, presented in a healthy and a safe way in an emotionally healthy way, of course, but they do need to understand like how serious the stakes are because they have a right. They have a right to know and they have a right to, while there's still time, do something about it themselves um, and defend themselves. That's yep. essentially what this is. You know, youth climate activists are practicing self-defense. They're looking at the future they're going to directly experience and they're fighting for, for a safer and a better and a healthier one. So, I, and and on top of that, so that's all just the sort of like morally, ethically, I felt like they deserve to have the story, but also um, in terms of the efficacy and the power of like, where can you get the most bang for your buck with sending a message like this out? I think putting it like I would bet every time on young people, especially when it comes to the climate crisis, because they're the ones who have the mandate in this space. They're the ones who have again, they have every right to know about it. They have every right to organize about it. And they have very much claimed this issue. Um, you know, well before I wrote this book, young climate activists have been claiming this issue as, as like in something that, that they uniquely own and, and people listen, you know, when young people stand up and say, I'm fighting for a world that I am going to be living in long after you are gone, you know, and, so it just felt like these are the most powerful people yeah. in the world to to give this idea to. Hundred percent, and you know it's. So first of all, I'm glad you didn't throw away your shot. That's a Hamilton joke for anybody. <laughs> um, and I, and I do believe this is not your only shot. Um, I do appreciate that you went sort of all in on this particular topic, because you're right, there are a lot of metaphors on climate change and climate crisis, and not a lot of stories that address it head on. Because quite frankly, I think this is 
probably true. It's it's an uncomfortable topic to think about. It's yeah. big. It's um, multifaceted. There's a lot of things that need to change. There's also a lot of things that we learned during COVID that could change pretty easily and it would improve the climate. I was talking to somebody today about the imagery between L.A., when people were forced to stay at home versus when it was normal traffic. And, and I think Hong Kong was the other city. I might be, it might be incorrect. Um, but those two big metropolitan cities with traffic and people and congestion and the fact that you could see the sky and the stars because there was no pollution in the air. If that doesn't get you on board for helping to reduce our carbon footprint, I don't know what will. That was the yeah. biggest like visual example of our direct impact on the earth which mm -hmm. contributes to climate change but yeah it is it is uncomfortable to talk about it's hard to think about how to solve it and so a lot of people just shut down and say i don't want to talk about it i don't want to think about it you know i'm gonna i'm gonna do my individual thing right and i'm gonna recycle and i'm gonna move on i'm gonna turn the lights off when i leave the room and that's gonna be it right that's yeah. kind of the extent of yeah. it and then the point is if that's all it took great We'd be in a in, in a great place. Um, I was also, you know, I watched Captain Planet and the Planeteers. I recycled, right? I was a Planeteer. Like, go Captain or go Planet, go Captain. That sounds like Captain Crunch. But uh, <laughs> for the record, I had a Captain Planet and a Wheeler. That's the guy that did fire with the red hair. Um, I had those two oh, action man. figures growing up, and it was awesome. Ah, I loved them so, good. so much. I wish I still had them. Anyways, the point is. There was a huge push, right, in the night, starting in the 90s of let's recycle, let's take care of our planet. And it worked to some extent, but it wasn't nearly the level we needed. And I think in a lot of respects, it's because we didn't know to some extent how bad it was and or how bad it was going to get so quickly. And yeah. then as we've gotten more data, now things have to shift and we do need to have bigger actions um, because it's an imperative. I know one of the things you talked about, um, or you, you've mentioned to me before, and I want to ask you about this. Wow, we're already starting to run out of time, so I want to I get this in and, and we can wrap it up because I think it's important. Growing up, for those that don't know, my background, um, uh, I, got, I double majored in college. I got uh, an undergrad degree. I double majored in theater and theology, and so the spirituality is a big part of who I am as a person. I'm not so religious right now, but I do have a background in that. And so for me, I've always seen it as a moral imperative as well as a spiritual imperative to take care of our planet. Um, there's a lot of things that, that I've had arguments uh, with others that were on that path with me who said it is less important to take care of the earth because this is not our final destination. Those I'm paraphrasing mm -hmm. some um, multiple conversations here. And my response is always, we were tasked with taking care of this earth for us, for future generations, so we can learn and grow uh, individually and collectively, and then pass on to to another place. If that if that's what we're, um, if that's the theology and the perspective that we have, then that's what we should do. It shouldn't be let's fast track Earth to get to another place. Because eventually, what's going to happen? Where are we going to go? And that's that's not what we were tasked with doing as as practitioners, pra, pra, faith practitioners, um, in that regard. So I want to I want to talk to you um, and get your perspective on um, the the imperative from a moral perspective and a spiritual perspective of of taking care of the earth. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that because I think it was also one of the big, one of the big priorities I had in, in the way I wrote this book is, you know, I do think we live in an era where there's, where there's this like kind of painful irony to the fact that some of the most, some of the most high profile faith groups, not all of the faith groups, not all people of faith, but some of the most high profile representations of religion and faith in our world right now are, are, are um, representing themselves as people who have no concern about the climate crisis um, specifically. Um, and I think, now, first of all, people having the, the you know, 72% of Americans on some level recognize the that the climate crisis exists and that it's a real problem. And that's, that's, that's not a well understood fact. A lot of people think it's like this right down the middle divisive topic. And actually, the vast majority of Americans actually do recognize that this is a problem and, and do care. Um, but yeah, there are there are a lot of people and high profile religious people who don't seem to give much concern to this issue. Um, one thing that has that has changed though in the last like and and I think I, I will say like to the to the reason you just like articulated that a common argument of like you know this feeling of like well it's it's people that mattered it's sort of like the these eternal souls that matter and right. you know that these internal destinations that matter and not so much Earth. Um, I think all people of faith on one, on some level or another, some, some better than others, but I think all people of faith care about people yeah. and care about people's lives and care about people being protected and would, would fancy themselves people who would run into a burning building to save a person who's in danger. I think yeah. any of the major world religions and whether you talk to the more progressive sects of those religions or the more or the more conservative sects of those religions and you said does your faith tell you that you should be the kind of person who would run into a burning building to save a person who's in danger they would say yes it does yes i would yep. um and i think in recent years our understanding of the climate crisis has become something that we have we've foregrounded people more than ever before and you know growing up in the 90s the early 2000s like the issue of the climate crisis was often framed as this sort of tree hugging ecological concern we're talking about polar bears we're talking about this like some vague notion of sea level rise that doesn't feel like it has any immediate bearing on on human life other than maybe people have to move um and we've started to see the immediate impacts even just now in the form of of you know bomb cyclones in the form of of massive uh you know 500 year hurricanes striking way more often than 500 years at a time um and you know and and massive unprecedented wildfires just swallowing up communities and neighborhoods down, towns and down here in um, texas we've i've i have lived here my entire life and the last two winters we've had incredibly cold severe like ice and snowstorms that we did not have except maybe mm -hmm. once every 15 years when i was growing up if that yeah. followed immediately by month long triple digit weather it's i'm in texas so we're used to some triple digit degree weather but month long last year i believe or close to it and then same the year before these two ex polar extremes of the back and forth and back and forth and to your point i didn't mean to cut you off but you're seeing yeah. that across across the globe 
Yeah, it's true. And, 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 you know, looking at some of the, even the more moderate climate projections of like, you know, the, like two degrees, two degrees of warming, um, beyond pre-industrial levels could easily result in, in conditions in some parts of the world, often areas of the world where the people living there were some of the, the lowest contributors to carbon emissions, incidentally. Um, you know, you have cities in India that could, could easily become essentially uninhabitable in, in at some point in this century where just, you can't go outside when it, in the summertime at all and become places where people really just have to vacate and leave. Um, and the human cost is, is tremendous. So people have been recognizing that. And I think the rhetoric and the conversation around the climate crisis has been centering around that. And so I think that there's a, there's a new opportunity for people of faith to, to recognize that. And, you know, whatever it is they believe about the fate of the world, whatever it is that they believe about their, whatever their concept of an apocalypse is and however near they think it is, um, they can still recognize the immediate human toll and, you know, the one generation out, the two generations out, the tremendous human toll that this issue involves. And, you know, that's, that's why I, in this book, I, I made this character, Sunny from the year 2100. I wanted to represent her as a person of faith. So, you know, she's the, she's the one kid who like awkwardly prays before every meal. And she's the one who's like, you know, she lives with this sense of the wind at her back and total confidence in, in the, the, the right thing being done. Now, of course, this is partly symptomatic of the fact that she has actually managed to travel in time back to the 2020s <laughs> to try to turn the tide. So she has every right to feel a sense of, uh, of an unseen hand guiding her, but you know, she's really motivated by that sense. And I think that is that kind of faith is what it takes. And, you know, cause we are living in very epic times with epic stakes. You know, this is, you know, you mentioned storytelling that really reflects this idea of needing to find your friends and band together with people. And my favorite example of that is fellowship of the ring and the whole Lord of the Rings story, which to me is like a, function a lot of it functions as a really powerful allegory for the times we're living through the stakes the stakes are epic um there is a looming darkness and a looming danger uh that's kind of growing and swelling before our eyes and it's very easy to fall and slip into despair um in the sight of it which is which is a huge theme throughout the whole course of that series of books and what we do in the face of it is we we have to we have to take some form of faith side by side with other people, um, you know, regardless of like dogma, it takes faith to say, this is a fight worth fighting. Mm -hmm. um, it really takes, and, and it takes the kind of faith that really rages against the temptation to despair. And, you know, those are the times we're living in. And that's the kind of, kind of heart that we need in people uh, to take on the fight that's ahead of us. Cause it's, it's a winnable fight, yep. but it's a hard fight. And it really takes that kind of like that inner strength to make it through. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, Cliff, tell people where they can purchase your book. It's out this month in April. Where is the best place for them to find your book? So the easiest way to find my book is to just go to my website, which is heyclifflewis.com. So H-E-Y Cliff, C-L-I-F-F, Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. Dot com and there's a pre-order link right there so if you're if you're listening to this before before April 18th 
that's that's where you can pre-order the book, um, which pre-orders are really helpful, especially for debut authors. So if you if you want to get your hands on it, please pre-order. But also there that you know that same link will be a great way for you to just purchase it if it's already out, and uh, you know it's it'll be available through all all major outlets. So um, whatever your preferred, if you got a local bookstore you want to order it through, or you want to just go through Amazon or whatever, um, you know it's it's pretty it'll be widely available. That's right, and if you like to frequent your local bookstore, I will just say, go there and ask them to get it for the bookstore and purchase it from them. It's a win-win. Helps Cliff, helps the bookstore, people helping people. It's a beautiful thing. Heck yes. I love it. All right. We're going to shift to the final uh, portion, segment, piece, whatever you want to call it, of the episode, Things to Check Out. It's a segment where I provide a list of recommendations of something to read, watch, and or listen to, and I invite my guests to do the same. Uh, I will go ahead and go first. So uh, on the topic, so I mentioned it earlier, I'll bring it back around, Graphic Audio, definitely recommend checking them out. They don't have, they might still have their Marvel license. I think I saw some new Marvel titles, um, but they don't have their DC license anymore. You might be able to find, so I purchased my versions, ooh, uh, six, seven, eight years ago um, at this point. And I think you can get maybe CD copies or a digital download on Amazon or somewhere else online um, If it is, for older titles that uh, Graphic Audio doesn't have the license for anymore. Anything that is net new, just go to their website. I think it's graphicaudio.com. You can check out, see what titles they have. They have a lot of fantasy, a lot of Western, a lot of really cool stuff. But I highly recommend uh, listening to it if you can. Um, I think it was originally marketed to uh, truckers because they drive for long, long distances and they need ways to stay up uh, driving through the long nights. And so the idea is that if you're listening to, I mean, the Marvel Civil War one was six or eight hours uh, in and of itself because it's expansive. So uh, I definitely recommend that um, for something to listen to. Something to watch. Um, uh, I'm a big fan. I don't know, uh, Cliff, you've seen Looper. You a big Looper fan, the movie? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, oh for sure. Ryan yeah. Johnson at his finest. You got Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis. Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing a young Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis playing a his age Bruce Willis. Um, and so the premise, for those who aren't familiar, it's a sci-fi movie where people are sent back in time to be executed. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the executioner. And then one day... His older self appears in front of him and he freezes. He doesn't know what to do. And I'm not going to spoil anything else. That's all right there in the trailer. But yes, go check it out, Looper. It didn't get a lot of love initially when it came out, but it is far and away one of my favorite movies. So yes, go check that out. And then um, for something, so that's something to watch and something to listen to. For something to read, I'm going to go a little bit off topic. So I'm currently reading this book, The United States of Soccer. Um, well, I should say this. After We the Future, because that's a given. You need to purchase it. You should have already read mm -hmm. it. I don't know if you uh, what you're doing if you haven't already ordered multiple copies, but go ahead and pause the podcast. I'll wait. Okay, I've waited long enough. You should have already gotten it by now. But United States of Soccer, MLS and the Rise of American Soccer Fandom. So uh, if you're a, a longtime subscriber or a short-term subscriber to the podcast, you'll see that I have started releasing a new detox production called 25 for 25, the story of the Miami Fusion uh, from those who lived it. I'm a huge soccer fan, and this year, 2023, is the 25th anniversary of MLS's team, the Miami Fusion. Uh, so they started in 1998. They were contracted from the league. They were demised in 2001 after the most successful season in their history. They won a major trophy, the Supporters' Shield. Um, they were one of arguably the most successful teams in MLS history. 
still to this day. And um, they never really got the love they desire, they deserved, or I desired that they deserved. And so I've, uh, I'm doing 25 different interviews with people, sort of a bit of an oral history of the club. It's a lot of good fun. Um, and part of it, I'm doing some additional research. So the Miami Fusion are covered in that book. And so I've been reading it to get some additional notes that I didn't have to inform the overall podcast. So that's just something to read. But Clip, uh, what's something to read, watch, and or listen to for the listeners? Yeah. So um, reading, like, so I have been reading, um, well, there's what I've been reading and then I have a good suggestion that I think is more relevant to We the Future, but I've I've lately been just digging into uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, who is the sci-fi author, sort of master of speculative fiction. Yeah. Um, so she, she passed away just a few years ago um, and she was like, really in her heyday in like the seventies and the eighties. And um, I had never read any of any of her stuff and she's written so many classics. So it's just been fun. Like I love sometimes picking a, like a beloved author that I've never read and just kind of going through a bit of their catalog. So I read um, the lathe of heaven, which is a wild, wild mind bending story about someone who a man who dreams. Uh, and when he dreams, he dreams so hard that it changes the world oh. and changes the changes the whole fabric of reality every time he dreams. And he meets with a, a psychologist, a therapist to try to figure out how to manage this condition. And the uh, medical professional that's working with him kind of learns how to, through hypnosis, sort of manipulate this man's ability against wow. the man's will. And it is a trippy, trippy story. And it makes going to sleep really fun because you <laughs> feel like it's an extension of the book you're reading. Um, and then the the Dispossessed is another another classic from Ursula K. Le Guin about um, a a very different, It's it, it explores different ways of ordering societies. And it's about a very earth-like planet and a very moon-like moon, but not precisely our planet and the moon where there's a human settlement on that moon. And they practice a non a non-property owning way of life where they've just basically just trying a completely new way of ordering society and an economy and and it works really beautifully, even though the living conditions just in terms of the environment of this moon-like planet are like kind of harsh. And it's not the nicest place to live, but it's still kind of utopian because they've ordered society in a way that's quite utopian. And it's about a character leaving that world and kind of going back to this earth-like place and comparing the two societies. So it's very philosophical, but it's it, it all of Ursula K. Le Guin's books just are like mind expanding. Um, so those were great. And then relevant to We the Future, um, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, which I mentioned earlier, if you're new to this whole topic, if you're new to like diving deep, I mean, we all know about it, but if you want to deep dive into the climate crisis, that book will really help you wrap your head around the severity of the crisis and then have this other book ready as a chaser or else you're just going to go to a dark place by reading uh the uninhabitable earth which i would i would say is the chaser is this changes everything by naomi klein and it's very much a book about how we can tackle the climate crisis and how many of the changes if we do it right the changes we make to address the climate crisis can cure so many of our current societal ills. And we can come out of this not only having accomplished something so tremendous, but also having actually made life 
measurably better for everyday people all over this country and all over the world. So, so those are some, those are reading recommendations. Um, I am, uh, to watching watching recommendations it's great that you said looper that was one of the things i watched while i was writing this book oh, that i was like yes perfect. this is like really motivated me and kept me going um but i would say like if you were to take we the future and and think of two movies that are most uh that that share the most dna with it one would be the terminator uh terminator 2 is my favorite terminator movie but they're both good um but that whole idea like i can't think of another story that really leans on this idea of a future that is not working out and somebody traveling back to the present, what we understand to be the present um, to rewrite history as we know it. And so the Terminator, I had never realized how Terminator influenced this book was until I watched the Terminator right after I finished writing it. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, I wrote the Terminator. That um, first movie no. is so good. I, I'm, I'm a sucker for like first movies. It's like, Oh yeah. Terminator alien. Like the others are fine at, the second ones in both of those are really good, but that yeah. there's just something about the like grittiness of the low budget of the first ones that I love. It's it's so iconic. Relatively yeah, so, low budget, I would say. Yeah, Terminator's one, and then the other is the Newsies. Oh, um, yes. This book is very Newsies. It you know, and and I ever since I was a kid, you know, I grew up on the original Disney Newsies, a lot um, like feature film before yep. it was a Broadway show, and uh, Christian Bale like. Not, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Christian Bale, when he signed on to do that movie, he didn't even know it was a musical and he had almost no singing experience. So I actually love musicals where the singers aren't great singers because it just sounds so raw and real. Yeah. Michael Caine in Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, not a great singer, a little bit pitchy, but it just breaks your heart every time yes. he breaks a song. Oh. And uh, anyway, Newsies, so good. And it's about it's about union organizing. It's about yeah. political organizing. It's about people power. And it's about youth organizing. It's about kids. Yep. So Newsies meets Terminator um, is really the recipe for We the Future. So I definitely recommend checking those, those out if you've never experienced them. And then I'm listening to... Uh, an amazing band called Nielsen Family Band. Ooh. So it's spelled Nielsen, N-I-E-L-S-E-N. Um, like the like the TV the ratings. ratings score. Yeah, the Nielsen Family Band. And they are uh, a band. I'm, I'm friends with with uh, the lead singer of the band. And they, their music is beautiful. It's like Wilco meets Bob Dylan meets like a, a little sprinkle of Bill Callahan in there. Very and cool. it's just like folk rock, like modern contemporary indie folk rock, really brilliant songwriting. And the thing, the thing about this band that I especially love right now is uh, I have joined forces with them for my book launch event, which is two days before the book comes out. It's on April 16th in my town. And we have taken what was originally going to be a book launch and turned it into like this little music festival. So Nielsen Family Band is going to be performing at my book launch. Um, we have a youth uh, a youth orchestra that's going to be going to be playing a few songs at the event. Um, we got a stage. We got a big screen. Like it's going to be epic. I'm and excited. I'm super pumped about it. But you can look up Nielsen. Family. They're on Spotify. Their music like you can find it anywhere if you just Google them. Very um, very cool. yeah. That's. That's incredible. Well, Cliff, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This is, I think we've had a wonderful conversation. I'm excited for everyone to get to read your book. And as a reminder, we're going to have the teaser for the first chapter uh, of uh, the 
audio version of the book at the end of this episode. So I'm excited for people to hear that as well and to purchase the book. Um, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So um, my handle is the same on all the major platforms. It's Hey Cliff Lewis, H-E-Y-C-L-I-F-F-L-E-W-I-S. Hey Cliff Lewis. So, and I'm on, I'm most active on Instagram, uh, uh, Twitter and TikTok. And I, you know, I, I'm not like super prolific on TikTok, but when I post a TikTok, I really labor over it and I like to come up with some like really fun stuff. So definitely follow me on TikTok um, and all those other platforms because I'm, I'm always sharing updates as we get closer to the book launch. Very, very cool. Cliff, thanks so much for coming on the show. I can't wait to have you on again in the future, uh, whether it's for another project or just to discuss uh, the future of this earth and what we can do. It's been truly a delight. Thank you so much. I love talking to you, Joe. Appreciate it. Well, folks, you've been detoxing with detox. Uh, so go and make a more inclusive world and don't go anywhere because the first chapter of the radio drama, We the Future, is coming up. We the Future by Cliff Lewis, an audio excerpt read by the author. Plan A, activation. Step one, run for your life. My chest, like the future, was burning. Still, I ran up the mountain trail. Even with the sun so low, with daylight running out, the birds went on chirping like they had all the time in the world. Nobody told them it wouldn't last. I wheezed and ran on. Once I reached the mountaintop, I gave myself permission to catch my breath, only a little. The inhaler in my pocket could open my lungs, flood me with sweet, cool oxygen, but not yet. I reached for the other pocket instead, mom's phone, 1985, invalid pin, 1234, invalid pin, 1027, my birthday, I'm in. I opened YouTube and hit record. I know how the world ends, I panted. Just ran up Marduk Pinnacle in Carbon Hill, Pennsylvania, but I'm not supposed to run this much because an asthma attack, like the one I'm having now, could kill me. I pointed mom's phone over the mountain's edge toward the coal-burning power plant in the distance. Those smokestacks are the reason I need this. I reached into my pocket and pulled out the inhaler a blue plastic thing that looked like a cross between a Pez dispenser and a prescription pill bottle. But my medicine can't protect me forever. I mic dropped the inhaler for dramatic effect. With struggling lungs, I told YouTube all the terrible things I'd learned about the climate apocalypse, a looming disaster the coal plant had already started. I wheezed and rattled off the hundred ways that ordinary people were speeding themselves to the brink of destruction the vehicles, the vacations, the stuff in their grocery carts, all the harmless little choices that could bring on the end of the world as we know it. If the storms don't get you, something else will. The weather is just the beginning. One breakdown will set off a hundred others. A drought makes a war makes a plague. This is a chain reaction, so when the world breaks down and my inhalers run out, it won't be the weather that kills me. It's gonna be the asthma, I gasped. We are running out of time. Done. I hit publish and dropped to my knees, scrambling for the inhaler, but it was gone. Bounced right off the mountaintop. So much for dramatic effect. My lungs shrank and my panic grew, which made my lungs shrink even more. A chain reaction. 
I punched three numbers into mom's phone and waited for an answer. 911, what's your emergency? Too many to count, I thought, already unable to speak. My throat tightened. My thoughts drifted. Would anyone come to save me? Probably not. But had it been worth it? Had my wheezing 90-second video been enough to save the world? I'd probably never find out. I lay flat and watched the overlook a few paces off. It crossed my mind that the last thing I'd ever see might be this golden, deepening sunset. I could do worse. Then the web of filthy lights around the distant coal plant flickered on. Ew. Fossil fuels one, Jonah zero. Why even try to fight back when an army of smokestacks and tailpipes had all taken dead aim at one Jonah Kaminsky? First it was the asthma, then less than an hour ago it was the fuel tanker. That gas truck ran mom's Prius straight off the road on our way home from what might have been our final round of miniature golf. No one got hurt, not even the Prius, but the irony was more than I could take. I'd felt so angry, so brave, when I grabbed mom's phone and made a run for Marduk Pinnacle, as if I could take down the entire carbon empire with a single video upload. But the empire had time on its side, and was always a hundred steps ahead of me. My head was feeling carbonated now, a prickly wave of tingles scattering out across my body. The world went speckly, everything in front of me bent, warped like the surface of a giant soap bubble, until the bubble popped and everything snapped right back to normal. Normal, except for the pink astronaut. The astronaut planted an American flag, Neil Armstrong style, straight into the mountaintop dirt. I had to be hallucinating. Dying will do that. The pink mirage picked up mom's phone, ended the 911 call, and knelt beside me. A voice crackled out from the pink helmet, high and carefree. Jonah Kaminsky? I nodded my desperate face reflected in her visor. She handed me something small and silver, an inhaler. I'm from the future, she said. We need you. Hey, I'm Cliff, the guy who wrote all the words you just heard and all the other words that you can soon read in We the Future a novel for young readers that's set to be published on April 18th, 2023, just in time for Earth Day. We the Future is about what happens when an anxious, asthmatic boy teams up with a girl from the future to launch a climate strike big enough to rewrite history. If that sounds like something you'd like to read, you can pre-order it by visiting my website, which is heyclifflewis.com. It's just heyclifflewis.com. You can also follow me for more updates on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Hive Social, all under the same handle, which is just Hey Cliff Lewis. And hey, thanks for listening to this. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. 
and special thanks to my producers Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com. <laughs>